Hello and welcome to An Endless Pursuit, a podcast on innovation from Bristol Water. My name is Chris Thomas and I look after the Quest, our open innovation programme that's on a never-ending pursuit for progress. As part of this, I've been speaking with a number of internal and external experts to explore where the industry should be headed. We want to share our findings and are publishing them in this podcast. The series has explored a number of different themes, but today's episode is a general one. We want to explore how the industry innovates, how it tackles challenges and where it can improve. I met with Piers Clark, the founder and chairman of Isle Utilities. Through Isle, Piers helped establish an innovative funding mechanism for technology companies called the Technology Approval Group, or TAG for short. TAG bridges the gap between venture capital investors and the water company end users and has resulted in over £1 billion being invested into water-related clean tech companies. Before Isle Utilities, Piers was the Managing Director for the private equity fund Global Water Development Partners, the Commercial Director at Thames Water and the Managing Director for Michelle. Piers now is a Board Director for Modern Water PLC and Ozo Innovations. Our conversation explores great vision around how we can rise to the challenges of today and how the industry might make bold leaps. I hope you enjoy listening and as ever do join the conversation at innovation at bristolwater.co.uk. Piers, it's wonderful to have you with us today. Thanks for coming along. You've got quite an enviable perspective of innovation in the water industry in your role as, as chairman of Isle Utilities. And it's quite a unique company. Can you give us a bit of a feel of, of what it is and what it does? Excellent. Well, it's delightful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. What does Isle do? I guess the, the headline is, uh, you know, why do we exist? We exist to help water utilities and big water users around the world make better decisions, I guess. And uh, we're a relatively small team, about 80 so people, spread across the world. So we're spread very thinly. We've got offices in Australia and Singapore, Abu Dhabi, all across Europe and in North America. And it's 80 people working with about 200 water utilities, helping them make better decisions. But in particular, that's about identifying and adopting new innovation and new technology. And what made you feel that the water industry in the UK, but even globally, needed a company like Isle to promote innovation? So it's funny. If the water industry was brilliant at adopting innovation, then Isle probably wouldn't exist. And it's, it's odd to be in a business where you're, the problem we're trying to solve would actually put us out of work. And I guess, you know, if when I'm 70, we've managed to get innovation sorted so brilliantly that aisle services are no longer needed. I think I will celebrate that rather than be saddened by it. But um, the challenge with the water sector, as you know, is that in general, water utilities around the world, water utilities are filled with incredibly competent and technically brilliant people. So, you know, you don't go to a water utility and suddenly find yourself dealing with people that you go, well, you, you, know, you just don't know what you're doing. Water utilities are filled with engineers and scientists who are very, very skilled at what they do. They're very passionate about what they do. They're very, they're, people join water companies to be stewards of the environment. And so, so there's this sort of public ethos that drives a lot of people that work inside water companies. And they're generally very open to innovation. They recognize that technology and innovation is good for their business. They get quite excited, especially the technical people get quite excited about new widgets, new gadgets and new ways of doing things. And so you've got this heart of the organization is pulsing for innovation. The problem is that the organizations themselves are actually quite risk averse for very good reasons. You've got water utilities around the world are risk averse 
conservative with a small c, quite bureaucratic, quite siloed. And so you've got this sort of dichotomy. You've got the staff who desperately want to do innovation inside organizations which, which find it quite a challenge to do innovation. And that's compounded perhaps more so in the UK, where we've got shareholders who are generally sort of risk-averse, conservative infrastructure funds. They didn't invest in water companies to make sort of technology risk-type gambles. They invested because they're infrastructure funds, their money's come from pension funds, and they're looking for sort of steady returns. And that doesn't necessarily chime very well with innovation. So you've got this rather exciting challenge in that we've got um, sort of global heating and the climate crisis, which the water industry can have a very dynamic effect on, just as one example of the pressure that we're trying to deal with. We've got an aging population, we've got a growing population, and all of these sorts of issues which, which force us to, or encourage us at least, to embrace innovation more effectively inside organizations that maybe are not quite so good at doing it. So I'll exist to try and help bridge that gap, to try and help water utilities work more collaboratively, more collegiately, so that innovation lands more successfully inside those organizations. That was a very long answer to a very succinct question. So. That is fantastic. And, and, and certainly that, that sort of heart of the companies that's there for the, you know, the good, to, for stewarding the environment, you, you, you absolutely feel that in all the water companies yeah. you go to, which is, is very true. I'm interested as well in the support you provide, not just from the water company's point of view, but from the innovator's point of view, because I've seen it described at how you, you work across the kind of the investment chain, if you like, in, in bringing startups or new technologies or whatever it may be into the corporates where they're looking for the capital investment to yep. do something with it and, and bridging a bit of a gap there. So I like to tell a story that basically says there are three actors in this uh, play. You've got the actors I've just talked about, which are the water utility personnel, technically very competent inside organizations that can become quite siloed and bureaucratic, um, but, but technically very competent and very keen for innovation. You've then got the entrepreneurs. They're also technically very competent. There aren't many snake oil salesmen in the water sector, actually, for the simple reason that, that if you were a snake oil salesman, you wouldn't choose to go into the water sector because there's just so many other easier places to try and sell snake oil. So usually most entrepreneurs do actually have a sort of solid product. Slight deviation. I did have one meeting in the Middle East a few years ago with an entrepreneur who was doing this very excitable pitch to me. And at the end of it, I said, well, this is, is very, very exciting and I, I, I can see your, your passion. However, you do seem to have broken at least two of Newton's laws of mechanics. And rather than him going, really? Oh, dear, that's bad. He was, yes, isn't it, isn't it exciting? And it was like, okay. Okay, well, I think um, best of luck. Uh, never, <laughs> never heard from them again. Bless. So you've got uh, entrepreneurs who in general are very passionate about what they do. They are perhaps a bit blinkered. You know, they perhaps believe their product is better than everyone else and maybe are, um, are biased in that and you've got to kind of manage them. Their usual problem is that they're running out of money. Every entrepreneur has a timeline at which point they can't pay their staff. They have a timeline at which point they can't pay for their office accommodation. And that is the challenge that entrepreneurs have, is that they're trying to sell a product into an industry that is unable, usually, to move at the pace that an entrepreneur needs them to move at for them to stay alive. And we've got lots of examples of companies which have failed, not because the products weren't good, but because the market just 
wasn't able to adopt it in time, and so the product just dies, and that's a loss to us all. And then you've got the third actor. So the first actor is the utilities, the second actor is the entrepreneurs, and the third actor is the investors. And the investors are very straightforward beasts. They've got a big pile of money, and they want to invest it and turn it into an even bigger pile of money. And in most respects, they're not they're not beholden on it being water. You know, if there's something in energy or there's something in rail or there's something in nuclear defence, you know, they'll invest in those just as readily as they'll invest in water. And we sometimes forget that in water. We sometimes forget that the market for venture capital has many other places it can go to. And if we don't provide a suitable platform, a suitable runway for technologies to get adopted quickly, you know, guess what? The money that the entrepreneurs need to keep developing things will just dry up because there's other more fruitful places for investors to put their money. Now, your question was actually, how do we help those different actors? And in particular with the entrepreneurs. So with entrepreneurs, we will often guide them to the investors that we think will match their needs. You know, if it's a People get confused about the difference between venture capital and private equity. So venture capital, as the name implies, it's about adventure. It's about taking risk. And so that is money that might go into an early stage company that maybe hasn't got a revenue yet, almost certainly won't have a profit, and maybe its product has, is at an early prototype. Private equity is generally growth money. It's money for the product's been developed, the company has a revenue, they've probably got a profit already, but the company's now looking to expand. And so there's a big difference between private equity and venture capital, with venture capital taking a higher risk. And entrepreneurs often forget where they sit on that, that spectrum. And so might, they might be needing venture capital money, but are talking to private equity investors, in which case, you know, you're wasting a lot of your life having those meetings, or they're after private equity money and talking to venture capital investors. And so what we try and do is, is match the entrepreneur to the right sorts of investors that can maybe serve their needs, scratch their itch. Fantastic. I, I like the idea of, of providing that runway to, to keep the entrepreneurs going and, 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 and help service that timeline that they're always chasing. I, I think that's fantastic. And it would be interesting to explore some of the dynamics of the industry that you were touching on there. But before we do, as I said at the start, I think you you have this wonderful view of, of the water industry in the UK and globally as to what's going on and how that innovation is, is coming through. What are the sort of key trends that you see at Isle that as water companies we, we need to start responding to or adopting to or exploiting? So that's a beautiful question uh, because there's no wrong answer. And obviously my views are based on my, my own sort of personal experiences and prejudices which come to, come to fore. Right now, the language that people have been excited about has been digitization and how we deal with data and everyone gets quite excited about all sorts of things and the, the language changes and we use Internet of Things or artificial intelligence or virtual reality or blockchain. And some of these we don't really understand. So blockchain is a great example of, of a phrase that is bandied about and I suspect doesn't have quite the miraculous applications in the water sector that people are currently pitching for. It's a bit like if you went back five years, there was this, this sort of wave of excitement about 3D printing. And there was lots of people saying, oh, 3D printing, this will revolutionize what we do in the water sector. And it has some applications, but it hasn't revolutionized what we do in the water sector. It was a bit of a, a gadget of the time that everyone jumped on. And the technology does have applications, but it's not going to change things dramatically. And I actually think blockchain will be the same. I do think that artificial intelligence 
and uh, virtual reality will have a massive change to how we operate. The, the insights that we can get on better asset management are phenomenal there. And what's interesting is a lot of the entrepreneurs in that sort of space are coming from the Australian and New Zealand end of the market, which is a tiny market. You know, There's whatever it is, I don't know, 25 million people in, in that part of the world. And yet the number of entrepreneurs working in that particular space is completely out of kilter with the population that's there. It's, it's a really interesting dynamic to see. So we've got stuff on digitization. Leakage is always a, a pressing concern, in particular here in the UK, because it's, it's sort of captured the zeitgeist of both the regulator and the public. And uh, yesterday there was a conference in London all around leakage and the challenge to get to zero leakage. And people were feeling that this was a sort of pipe dream. It is worth noting that in Japan, leakage is at two and a half, three and a half percent for some of the good, good operators. In the Netherlands, we've got um, Vitens has, has just actually moved from 5% leakage to 6% leakage. Now, I think pretty much every UK water utility would give their right arm to be at 6% leakage. Actually, for Vitens, the people I've spoken to there are horrified that this has shown a 20% increase in their leakage. They've gone from 5% to 6%, you know, or whatever the number is, maybe it's not 20%. There's been a significant increase in leakage. So leakage will always be an issue for us. Energy from sludge is also, or resource recovery, I think we're going to see an enormous amount of focus on that. What's interesting with resource recovery is a lot of the technologies that um, will enable us to get better at recovering things from wastewater, and I know we're at Bristol Water, which isn't about wastewater, but indulge me for 20 seconds. Recovering more resources from wastewater is something that we actually understand how to do. We know how to get phosphorus or, or energy or better nutrients or cellulose. We know how to recover those from sewage sludges but we just haven't commercialized it in a way that's enabled us to, to make a game change there. And I think, I'd like to think that we'll see that sort of thing really take off in the next 15 years. Biodegradable plastics from organic waste is an absolute, you know, the pathway for doing it is now well understood. We've got lots of technologies which will enable us to bridge that gap. The public want to see it, you know, biodegradable plastics. This is, this is an issue that we all can fully get behind. And the economics are phenomenal for it. So if you were a wastewater operator, this would be a, a sensible gamble to get into. I completely agree. It's quite an exciting time in that respect. Yeah. And I'm quite interested in the view then on the health of innovation in the, in the UK water industry, because you had some interesting examples there where there's sort of disproportionate amounts of entrepreneurial work around AI coming from Australia or some fantastic results on leakage from Japan and the Netherlands. Are we globally collected, connected enough to learn from from one another or actually are they in starkly different environments that that's just not a so so it's a spectrum and we we will always be able to be better than we are today so it's worth saying you know there's obviously things we can do better i do think it we shouldn't beat ourselves up the uk has a wealth of experience and we are good at sharing it and we're good at deploying it we yeah you know, because we've got some water utilities off scale even our walks are still much larger than many of the water utilities elsewhere in the world. So we've got a depth of technical capability because you can afford to have it when you've got a bit of scale that then enables us to have the resources, both financial resources and physical resources, laboratories and such like, and people resources to be able to, to embrace innovation. I don't think Brexit, I'm not a fan of Brexit. I think, um, you know, the work being part of the European Union, the Horizon 2020 projects 
have been just awesome for collaboration and bringing together like-minded utilities to work on things. So I think we're, we're good at that. We could always get better. We are suffering a little. So if you go, I started work in uh, 1989 in the water sector. So it was just at the point of privatization. And what we found was prior to privatization, which I wasn't here for, but I heard stories of, you know, you had the WRC who did the research and they were a big body and they, everyone paid a bit of money to them and, and they, they did some excellent work. And then for the first sort of 10 years of, after privatization, all the water companies sort of scurried off and ran their own individual programs, all of them very similar, but not sharing their results because they sort of thought they should keep it secret. As we got into the 90s, there was much more collaboration coming, much more collaborative trials were ongoing. And we've now seen a lot more of that coming into play. I think we've got to be careful about the, the language that's used so that we don't, on one side, obviously our regulator wants to be able to sort of have a, a benchmarking of a ranking of, you know, this water utility is better than that water utility and, and so that everyone aspires to get to being better. But you've got to be careful that if you're going to create that hierarchy, you don't drive a wedge that makes people say, well, I'm not sharing with you my good things because otherwise you might bump up me on the table. And so you've got to, you know, that's a, that's a really delicate balance to be had. And, and for innovation, you, you just destroy it if, you, if we don't start sharing with each other. And do you think that wedge is too big at the moment or, or that the industry is managing it quite well? I think it's good at the moment. And I worry about some of the rhetoric that's being used for the coming AMP. You can see that the, the sorting out of you're a good utility and you're a bad utility, uh, that sort of language will lead to the people who are being on the good side will want to stay up there. And if one way they can do that is to not let other people play or not to share, that, that would be worrying. I do have to say that Every technical person I speak to, you never go to a conference and see someone saying, well, we, we've cracked leakage, but we're not telling you how we did it. So I think in general, it comes back to the individuals that, that actually make up the water sector. Almost to a, every individual I've met is doing this to serve the environment and the communities they work in. You know, it is about being a steward of the environment. And I'm interested again in, in this sort of the global sense of this is, from your observations of other utilities around the world, is there anything that others are doing differently that oh, yeah. the UK yeah. could benefit from? So before answering that, there's a little bit of context here because people do research for completely different reasons or they do collaboration, research, innovation, R&D. They do it for different reasons. So if we take at a national level, if you look at a couple of countries, Singapore and Israel, for example, both have very strong water platforms for research and innovation. And that's driven by a national security agenda. Both of them are countries where their water supply is dependent upon their neighbors. And so they need to invest heavily, and they have done for decades, to create that independence. You know, Singapore used to receive something like 85% of its water from Malaysia. And Malaysia said, you know, if we ever go to war, we're going to turn off the tap. Now, that would strike me as a war crime, but that's a separate issue. And so Singapore has been very conscious in, OK, we need to get some water independence. So they've led the way with doing um, potable water recycling and you know the development of the new water product in Singapore, which is just a fantastic. It was world class in what it led. Israel, you, know, you, you only need to look at the news and see what's happening around Jerusalem and the World Bank and the issue uh, um, World Bank around Jerusalem and the the West Bank, sorry, um, and you can see the challenges that come with water there. 
And that's again why the Israeli government has invested heavily in water. You then jump to somewhere like the United States, where there's lots of cities who have developed water incubators. And now those aren't because of water security issues in the same way that Singapore and Israel are. Those are generally about job creation. That's about more tax dollars. That's about how do we attract entrepreneurs to come to our particular city and set up their business here, which is a totally different objective than say what we do in Northern Europe, and I'm thinking you know, Netherlands and uh, Netherlands, Germany, UK, where actually it is driven by, okay, I, I've got a problem. How do I solve this particular problem? I've got, you know, leakage is an issue for me. I need to address leakage. Who, who knows how to do that better? Uh, and who can I work with? So that we have that different dynamic. You then go to Australia or New Zealand, where actually because the market's small, the entrepreneurs are quite loud. They have to be loud. They have to reach out to other parts of the world just to access a market for their particular product. Whereas if you were based in Germany and you were a German entrepreneur, you've probably got enough local market to work with. You've got 5,000 water companies that you, you, you can engage with just across Germany. Or in North America, you've got 56,000 water companies in North America. I mean, 56,000, it, the mind boggles. The average size, and, and bizarrely, you, you know, there's probably 100 which serve north of a million people, and then you've got 55,900 of them which are serving less than that, and most of them are serving you know, less than 1,000 people probably, great majority. So I, I, I get the sense that we, we've got lots of different problems, some of them really quite severe and, 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 and uh, tragic in, in many cases, and, and some of them more opportunist. And, and for whatever our situation might be, it's about sort of finding that, that location in the world that, that's there already, that has, has the entrepreneurs that are trying to solve the problems for whatever or, reason. Or has the skill set. So for leakage, I, I do think we could learn a lot from Japan because they've managed to get leakage so low. Now, of course, there's been some useful things that they have got new infrastructure. They're not necessarily dealing with infrastructure that's as old as we're used to in Europe. But they also have, you know, joints that are, uh, designed not to leak. They've come from, you know, specially designed joints, not joints that have come from the gas industry that you know, naturally leak. We don't tend to uh, to take all of the learning that we need. And sometimes with things like Japan in particular, you've got a, a massive cultural barrier for innovation to, to get out of the country. We don't see much in the way of Japanese technology coming out of Japan because Japanese entrepreneurs don't naturally speak English. They've got quite a big local market. They don't need to necessarily take the massive gamble. And it is a massive gamble. If you're a, you know, a $20 million business in Tokyo and you're serving your local market and you decide, you know what, I think I want to break into North America, you could destroy, you could sink your home business just by your ego telling you that you need to go to America because it's such a slow, it's a difficult market to break into. There's lots of competitors. It's going to be very expensive. And actually, you probably will go, you know what, I'm just going to stay here in my, in my market. And that is not good for the global water industry because it means that innovations are not necessarily being shared, which is part of the bridge that we and I'll try and provide. Yeah, fantastic. And another good reason for the Brits to brush up on their, their language skills and, and improve their, their work there. And and so probably I can speak to five in Japanese. Actually, I can speak to four. That's it. I can count to four and say hello. That's and can you write it down? Don't be silly. <laughs> <laughs> so, final question on 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 the health then of of in, innovation is the the water industry in the UK has got some pretty big challenges, and you touched on many of them around things like leakage and there's reducing plastics and water scarcity. And none of these are ever solely just technology problems, but it's certainly a big element of of the solution. 
Do you think we're going to manage it? Do you think we're going to be able to overcome these challenges? I have 100% confidence in the ability of humans to adapt and change. When we are mobilized, when we're motivated and mobilized, we will be able to address this. Well, I I did environmental sciences in the late 1980s was my my sort of undergrad degree. And um, at the time, it was quite scary and depressing because we had the ozone layer. It was the story back in 1986, 87 was all around the ozone layer and the hunting of whales, actually. Those were the two issues I, I, uh, that we lost sleep over and got passionate and had debates about. And those issues have kind of gone away because we flagged them up. They felt like they were insurmountable. At the time, it's, we, we forget how insurmountable those problems felt. How on earth are we going to deal with this growing hole over the southern hemisphere in the ozone? And we've been able to mostly address that. Obviously, there's been this, this blip most recently, but let's, in general, the, we're going in the right direction. I think there, we've gone through a period with ridiculous climate change deniers, and there are still some, some fools, and they are fools, who blindly you know, stick their fingers in their ears and cover their eyes and refuse to look at the, the cold, hard data that tells us we are in a climate crisis. The next generation are going to be completely intolerant of that, and they are the ones who will have to clear up the mess that the future generations and the existing generation are leaving for us. But they will be motivated to do that. Phosphorus, I think, is an issue that, that we haven't quite got our minds around, but we'll get there. Water reuse, or the water scarcity issue can be dealt with through water reuse. It can also be dealt with through new technologies, which will enable us to generate new water resources. What do I mean by that? The extraction of water from air, atmospheric water generation, is now something that is just on the cusp of being realizable. There's something like 75 companies currently now that are active in providing atmospheric water generation solutions. They're not cost competitive, certainly for the UK at the moment. They, the best of them are getting cost competitive with small scale desal. But that will, you know, it's just a matter of technology will get there. It's, it, we're two or three years away from those being technologies which will be adoptable in, um, in places like the Middle East, where the issue is, where the water scarcity issue is particularly pressing. So I have confidence that we will mobilize to address these problems as long as we stay passionate about them. And you know what? The survival of the human race depends upon this. So we, we have to do it. I think that's great. I think and uh, when you cast your mind back to things like the issue with the ozone layer, actually a lot of the challenges we face in the water industry become or feel a bit smaller. It's quite encouraging to remember that there are much bigger issues at play. And, and when you live every day trying to work out how to solve these smaller ones, you know, they're, they're, they're just a step on the journey. And you, you can have some confidence as you look back for, to the bigger issues that actually these smaller ones are, are, are absolutely resolvable. We shouldn't be naive about it because they, the scale of the challenge is, is horrendous. But we can't give up hope. We can't give up. You know, we've, got to, we've got to keep believing that we can get there and keep striving for doing things better. Absolutely. I suspect that in 300 years' time, people will look back at the generation that lived between 1950 and 2050, and they won't thank us. They will see us as a generation that that sat on our hands and didn't respond despite the evidence that was blatantly before us. And that's worrying. It's embarrassing. It's, Um, It's quite harrowing, isn't it? Moving on a little bit then to some of the challenges we face in, in, in fostering and encouraging the adoption of, of innovation, and particularly in the water industry, 
we often borrow innovations from other industries, typically where there's a bit more money, you know, oil and gas or <laughs> yep. electricity. But they, they come with their own unique setup and parameters around them, you know, oil and gas. The product's much more valuable. So sometimes the, the business case for using the same technology doesn't quite stack up or electricity is much easier to transport than water is. Absolutely. So sometimes yep, things yep. don't quite stack up in borrowing their innovations there. Do you think we've got enough going on for our own specific purposes that we're we're able to address some of these challenges we've just been discussing and meet some of these bold targets that we're setting ourselves or are we lacking a bit and, and looking to our left and right at other industries a bit too much? It's a bit like the comment earlier. I think we can always do better than we are, but we shouldn't beat ourselves up too much about where we're at today. You're absolutely right. The, the comment around you know, other industries have a more valuable product per unit, you know, gas, is just worth more when it leaks and and it floats up and it causes a health and safety issue that's very different to the uh, the issue that comes when water leaks most of the time it leaks downwards and disappears and it's only when it actually causes a flood that it really causes a health and safety issue and so that does mean that often the well I'm just repeating your point sorry but the point you made about you know innovations from other sectors don't transfer there were some interesting examples of things that, well, that doesn't quite apply. So Zeropex was a company that uh, came from the oil and gas sector about 10 years ago. And that was about energy recovery from PRVs, pressure reduction uh, valves, in uh, in the water distribution network. Now, there's quite a lot of companies that do that. And um, Zeropex was you know, one of the, the more credible ones, I think. And they got a few installations. But actually, the payback was better in the water sector than it was in the oil and gas sector because of the the number of PRVs we've got and the pressure that they run at and the, how much we, we use them. So we actually did find here was a technology that transferred from oil and gas and had a better place to land inside inside water. Are we looking, uh, are the, uh, your question was, are there innovations that work better for us? And there was a really interesting point made yesterday by Jeremy Heath from um, Sutton East Surrey Water at this leakage conference. And he was making this point around leakage. We probably need to stop looking at what they've been doing in the gas sector and the joints they use in the gas sector for their their connections. And we need to, to come up with connections which are specifically designed for the water industry, which you know, won't leak because every connection sort of drips water here and there. And it was a really interesting point to say, you know, sometimes there are problems that are so industry specific that we need to throw the full weight of our attention on those. And getting that balance right of, of making sure our ideas are fertilized, at least by what's going on in other industries, yet not losing the sharpness of addressing the problem that is specific to our industry is a, is a dynamic challenge. And to be a bit pushy on the point, do you think we're getting that dynamic right? Are we, are we managing it? No, no, we're not getting it right. There isn't enough cross-industry collaboration. I am aware that, that things like Northumbrian Water has got a challenge panel for their innovation group that does actually deliberately have other industries involved. You know, three or four times a year, this panel comes together and they share what they're doing and they share best practice. The challenge, of course, is that we've only got so much bandwidth in the day. And if I said to you, oh, no, 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 next Monday, I want you to go to a two hour meeting and it's going to involve some people in the gas sector and people in the energy sector and the airports. Uh, and I'd like you to contribute to their ideas. It's difficult to find the, the right forum for doing that. Open innovation and reaching out to the supply chain and to the public, where, of course, the public are working in lots of different areas, does enable you to try and capture some of those leads, those threads 
But um, we shouldn't be naive in thinking that just because we're doing that open innovation outreach, that's what's going to deliver the the brilliant idea. That's just the first step in gathering the ideas and then filtering them down. You know, this is hard work. This is not an easy thing to do. Innovation is risky and difficult, and it should fail. You know, innovation is by definition taking risk and having things go wrong. And lots of people wear innovation as a badge of honor. And actually, innovation means you're you're going to fail. Uh, when I say to people, so yeah, marvelous, you've done ten innovation projects. How many of them failed? And they say not a single one. Actually, what that tells me is, you know what, you're probably not being innovative enough. I did have one chief executive, and you can probably take this, this might not make the edit. I did have one chief executive of a UK water company who looked me in the eye and he said, we are very proud to be an innovative company, but none of our innovations are ever going to fail. And I just thought, well, that means you don't understand innovation. Yeah, if I worked in that organization, I knew my chief executive had sort of said, we're going to be innovative, but nobody must give me an innovation that fails. Well, guess what I'm going to do? I'm only ever going to propose projects that I'm 100% certain work, which means I'm only going to propose projects that aren't particularly innovative because I've got that 100% certainty they're going to work. And you've sort of, you've immediately crushed the innovation spirit by demanding that it has to be successful. I think you should demand that innovation should, that an innovation department should have failures because that would show that they're being innovative. Of course, you don't want 100% failures. Absolutely. And I love the, the the point you make in there that, that's just a very real world point around, you know, with innovation having so much uncertainty and risk associated with it and being so quite, quite a broad thing to explore, actually just getting time to prioritize it and, and, and just make it happen and commit that effort and resource to it. Really, really quite a challenge. Someone has a good idea in a meeting and everyone goes, that's a marvellous idea, let's crack on with it. Actually, that's a, that's, you've just created this massive wealth of work that needs to be, be delivered by someone <laughs> somewhere and paid for by someone somewhere. I was thinking the uh, ideas come very cheap. It's, it's doing them that's yeah. the, 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 uh, the real trick. So exploring a bit more of the, of the challenges we can face, there's, there's some more real practical dilemmas, I think, that, that come around sometimes. Sometimes we see we might have an innovation that looks... Uh, like it should come through the supply chain quite effectively. But actually, from the supply chain's point of view, it might diminish the work volumes that they, they have. And actually, therefore, it's not quite attractive yeah. as a commercial product. Yeah, if you're going to find something that avoids people having to dig holes in the ground, then don't, don't expect the contractors who make their money digging holes in the ground to come up with it. Yeah. yeah. but but you... Turkeys and Christmas, they come to mind, <laughs> don't they? Um, yeah. It does. <laughs> But the supply chain is a wonderful place for innovation because that's where they're incentivized to, you know, create products and services that could be sold globally where local monopoly water companies don't have that same dynamic. So I, I feel sometimes you have this strange dichotomy. And similarly, we have situations where capital investment is a, is a long, well-governed process and the entrepreneur might need that investment, but it's a, it's a slow burn to get that revenue. It's not, it, it's not fast money. And so... Right back to the start of our conversation, you were saying, you know, the entrepreneurs are tracing this timeline before they go out of business where the companies that have these sort of long, arduous and well thought through capital investment programs, the two don't quite marry up. So I can see very practical limitations around innovation. Now, I don't know if these are sort of few and far between and actually by and large things are working, but I wonder from your view is with those sort of practical uh, elements in mind, if, if there's one thing you could change around oh, how the absolutely. water industry is operating, so, what, what would that be and what would so, it look like? The short answer is we have to get better at adoption, okay? A better at adoption. And let me just clarify what I mean by that. So 
one way that you drive innovation in the supply chain is the water utility squeezes the supply chain, just reduces the cost. And everybody then says, oh, well, I've got to be more innovative because you know, I've just had 5% taken off my profits. Actually, what most of that drives in the, in the supply chain is not driving more innovation. It drives more cost cutting and a reducing of quality. The only way you get to there being a better quality or a new innovation is if it's done in collaboration, in particular in the water sector, because the industry, you can't expect your big supply chain partners to invest their profits in developing innovations unless they've got a certainty of a market. And that means you've got to have that collaboration coming together. And that's the only way that you're then going to get step change innovations, where you're going to get a sort of double digit efficiencies. You know, you might be able to squeeze two, three, five percent off someone by just forcing them to be a bit more efficient. If you want 20 to 25 percent, it requires a radical shift in how, how people operate. Now, the problem with that is that lots of people, you know, we've got history is littered in the water sector with loads of companies and individuals who have exposed themselves. They've put money on the table and invested in developing new products that have then been trialed by water utilities, shown to work well, and then not been adopted. And so actually, the investor and the entrepreneur is left standing metaphorically naked and abused while the water industry sort of says, oh, well, that was jolly interesting. Yeah, if only we could do it a bit. I, I think we need to do another trial over here now. And, and you sort of get caught into this period where the innovation dies. So the industry has to get better at adoption. We're now, actually, we're so much better than we were 10 years ago at identifying and developing ideas. We're actually a lot better now at collaboration and sharing ideas and pulling together the right partners for using universities when we need to use them, research organizations when we need them, consultants when we need to use them, end users and supply chain. You know, we're much better at that. The bit that we're still not good at is seeing, here's an idea, I've trialed it, oh, it works. Now it's going into my business plan and being hardwired in. What generally happens is, oh, here's a nice idea. Let's see if it works. Oh, that does work. Oh, here's another new idea. Let's try that one now. Oh, here's another idea. And you get caught into that it's constant sort of a groundhog day of retrying new ideas. Now, how do you get better at adoption? Well, I think there's a variety of things. I think, first of all, you've got to test things at scale. Um, if you do a 10 grand, if you spend $10,000 on a trial, you'll probably end up doing things at such a small scale that all it does is raises more questions than answers. Whereas if you spent 50 grand or 100 grand, you test it at a scale that enables you to get that business case confidence that then enables people to adopt it. You also need to make sure the link to the senior C-suite decision makers is not broken. You know, every chief executive that I meet with is passionate about innovation and is frustrated that their organization doesn't embrace innovation more, but they've lost the link to owning the innovation. Wouldn't it be great if the finance director, if here in Bristol Water, if your finance director knew what innovations were being tested and the impact of those innovations on the business plan and actually every monthly review with whoever, you know, the appropriate uh, executive was that they were talking to, they were saying, ah, oh, now there was a trial being done at such and such a site and you were expecting these results. How's it gone? Now, that would be a really encouraging conversation because it would show that there was this sort of senior level, board level engagement. Now, it doesn't happen because of bandwidth. It's not because people aren't interested. It's because of bandwidth. There's just so many other things to worry about. And most of the trials that need to be done need to be quite technical. And actually, so there's an onus on the technical people need to be able to tell their stories at a level that isn't overwhelmingly technical and loses the, the audience they're talking to. But we need to get better connections on that. And the short answer to your question, which you can edit out the long answer if you want, 
is we have to get better at adoption. Fantastic. No, I think that's great. I, I've um, been scrawling notes as you go, really. I think they're, they're, they're fantastic points. And I'm pleased to say that innovation at Risk Water goes straight into the CEO, actually. So, <laughs> well, well and knowing Mel, I'm not at all surprised <laughs> at that. So we've got to draw to a close. And one of the fun but probably more challenging questions that we've been asking people as we've explored these different podcast engagements is, of all the solutions that are out there that you have sight of, and there's a wealth of them as, as we've explored from, from the perspective of our utilities, what do you think is going to be the biggest flop? What's going to disappoint us? The, the biggest most? flop? Yeah. Excellent. Everyone loves a prediction and, and, and they'll shoot for the stars, but what's, what's going to fall short? So I'm not a big fan of the blockchain stuff, as we noted earlier. I think flop is an interesting word because a flop is, is, is those three actors I mentioned, I think there's going to be quite a lot of flops for the investors. Uh, I could name, I'm not going to name the company because it would be unfair in a public podcast, but I'm aware of a a Northern European company that has received over 100 million of investment from its investors to invest in a product that is very, very exciting and it's in the, the biosolids sector. But if the company was really successful, it would be worth about 15 to 25 million. So already the investors have put in four times more money than the company is ever going to be worth. And that's not good. And the reason they've done it is partly because the investors, once you're in, you sort of feel you've got to keep placing the bet on the table. And they're, they're sort of convincing themselves that this company is going to be worth 400 million. So if I put 100 million in, well, that's okay. And I just don't think that's going to happen. I do worry that we don't have unicorns. So in the investment language, um, a unicorn is a company that was invested in by venture capital and is ultimately then worth a billion. And so in uh, Silicon Valley, there's something like over a thousand unicorn businesses. As far as I'm aware, we've never had a unicorn in the water sector. And there's a couple of companies I think have potential for unicorn status. But yeah, I'm answering the wrong question. I'm giving you the... I'm intrigued uh, now, though. <laughs> well, I think some of the atmospheric water generation companies will, will, um, will be there. The companies which have got a good recurring model, recurring revenue model, and are addressing an asset management type issue, because really everything in the water sector is about asset management, asset management, asset management, asset management. Yeah, we build new stuff, but that can't, that's not sustainable. We've got to find a way of managing the assets we've already built and I suspect that that's where the breakthrough technology is going to come. And I think there's lots of stuff in AI which will, um, will enable us to do that better. I think there's um, a whole other topic to explore there because I'm very intrigued of the, the idea of reoccurring revenue when it comes to asset management. It's quite hard sometimes to, to, to get that right, I think. And I know a lot of investors look for that. However, I will circle back. <laughs> what, what, what do you think will be the biggest disappointment for us? Oh, yes, sorry, I didn't actually answer the question. What will be the biggest disappointment? I think we're going to find that we shouldn't have invested in aerobic treatment in wastewater, that we will look back and go, why did we spend 25 years blowing air into wastewater and enhancing aeration methods? There's lots of stuff going on in enhancing aeration methods. And actually, we're trying to answer the wrong exam question. The exam question should be, how, how do we do wastewater treatment anaerobically? rather than aerobically, and just avoid all of that nightmare of energy use and oxygen transfer efficiencies and such like. So I think that is something that in 15 years' time, they'll go, my God, in the late 20th century, they were obsessed with aerobic treatment. Why didn't they do anaerobic treatment? I can see the academics scurrying off now to uh, to write their papers on anaerobic <laughs> treatment. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I think so we've explored I. quite a few topics there, and uh, there's certainly some good challenges for, for us to take away. So thanks, Piers. Thank you very much, Chris. 
Thanks for joining us on our innovation quest. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and if it has sparked any thoughts on where we could work together to push the industry forwards, we'd love to hear from you. Please do go to our website or contact us through innovation at bristolwater.co.uk. 